0: Hello, and welcome to Regrets I've Had a Few. I'm Paul Hunter, Artistic Director of Told By an Idiot, and this is a podcast where I talk to friends and colleagues delving into what made them the person they are today. Hello, and welcome. Uh, my guest this month needs no introduction, so here goes. He has, had <laughs> a, he has had an extraordinary career across many different disciplines, actor, director, writer, translator. He has been around many key moments in British theatre, including creating the role of Mozart in Amadeus at the National Theatre. He also appeared in some of the most successful British movies of the 1980s and 90s, and his books on acting and cinema, particularly his astonishing work on Orson Welles, are unmatchable. Oh, and he played the lead in one of my favourite sitcoms. Uh, Welcome, Simon (laughs) Caller, who is chuckling for a second, trying to recall what I was referring to there. We will will come to that later, because it was... (laughs) Wonderful thing. No, I, mean. um, I obviously have had the chance uh, to work with you, Simon, on two occasions, both of which were on French projects, uh, yeah. an adaptation, your adaptation, brilliant adaptation of the masterpiece that is the French film Les Enfants de Paradis, and the joy that it was pre-lockdown to a feature <laughs> in uh, your wonderful <laughs> version of Le Cage Fall, the play, not the musical. We will touch on that later, but I just wanted to ask quickly about your love of all things French. Did, did that come from your father? Who was uh, he? No. Uh,
1: well, uh, in a way, uh, um, his mother was French. Ah. Um, she came from Lyon. Uh, she came to England when she was 18. And for the rest of her life, uh, up to the age of 88, she spoke with an Inspector Clouseau accent. Uh, she never acquired an English accent ever, though she was absolutely au fait with Dickens, Shakespeare, and all the rest. She had, so she was. Very French, a very French, French woman, um, uh, obsessed with uh, domestic cleanliness and perfection at all levels, incredibly hardworking, um, uh, very sharp-eyed. Um, uh, and I, I contrast her with my other grandmother, who was of German origin and, uh, but had, a Dan- had had a Danish husband and was somehow much, much more cosmopolitan. Than although she spoke with a, a perfectly regular English accent, um, <laughs> uh, but she seemed to embrace the whole idea of being European much more than Toto. And in fact, that, that was my grandmother's uh, nickname. Her real name was um, uh, Eugenie Elizabeth Lenore, uh, and her, her 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 family name was Harvey because her father had been Scottish. So it's all kind of quite. In, into woven and, and inter-european my my background really um my my grandmother the, the other one the, the the one the Danish husband used to uh, describe us as 57 varieties uh like Heinz uh, salad cream and uh, um I've always felt terrifically connected to um the continent of Europe in uh, every nation within it, but particularly French because that's the language I speak. Um, although, oddly enough, I don't know France that well. I know Italy so much better. I even know Germany better. But apart from Paris and Marseille and Lyon, that's sort of the extent of my knowledge of of, of the French uh, landscape. But my knowledge of French culture is, is um, uh, well, wide. I won't say deep, but yeah. it's wide. And I've always loved the language. And... Uh, um, uh, it became very naturally to me to 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 translate it. But the reason, sorry, i'm I'm no, 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 much more than you probably wanted to know., yeah. but um, I started translating from French for a rather um uh, almost shameful reason, which is that I'd come across uh, a play in in that little uh, by the Odeon uh, a theater. Uh, in, in Paris, the, 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 well, there's a street just beside it, alongside it, where there's the most wonderful theatre bookshop. And I was scanning the the, the shelves to, to, because in those days, um, I, I was, you know, I, I suppose I was in my thirties. Uh, in those days, it was still quite common for French plays to be done in English translation. It was a big part of, of our um, dramatic uh, kind of output. And uh, I wanted something new and interesting. And I saw that Milan Kundera had written a play. It's called Jacques et son Maître. In fact, he wrote a number of plays. But I was so abjectly in love with Kundera's work. I had one immediate thought, which maybe I could translate this and I'd get to meet him. That that was my absolute motive. It's a, This play is a wonderful play uh, inspired by Diderot, but it's... Uh, everything you would expect uh, from a play by Milan Kundera, just fantastic. I've never been able to persuade anybody to do it in England, not anybody at all. They go, oh, it's so French, it's so French, because people talk about life and art and philosophy and the meaning of things, you know, which is inimical to the British public. we uh, Well, we we will return to that, but I have to ask, did you get to meet Milan Kundera? I did. I had spent one of the most wonderful days of my life. Wow. Uh, Uh, in Paris with him, drinking huge quantities of alcohol. (laughs) Nothing with Bekarovka, which he still loyally drank, his Czechoslovakian national drink. And um, I suppose it is one of the little things, aren't there, in one's life where you you just think, well, um, something truly, miraculously good has happened in my life. And that was when he decided to write, when it was published by Faber, He decided uh, he was invited to uh, write um, a foreword, but he decided instead to write an afterword. And it started with the phrase um, How is it possible that my play, that that has been uh, translated uh, by an English actor, and it turns out to be the best, most faithful translation of any of my work in any language? (laughs) Okay, no. <laughs> well, I mean, a put that point. on my tombstone, that'll Absolutely. do But
0: sometimes when you say about a day Or an evening, I kind of know what you mean I remember once having dinner With the film director Terence Davis Oh yeah and, uh, uh, and we went to Ketner's, I, I was very nervous Because uh, for me his film Distant Voices Still Lives is one of the greatest British films of, of all time yeah. And uh, and he, I don't know if you met him or know him But I was a bit nervous because When I'd read about him, he, he comes across as <laughs> Potentially quite a cervix, <laughs> but we had the most joyous evening. And his oh. knowledge of cinema, particularly kind of American cinema from the kind of mid '40s through to the mid '60s, was astonishing. Yes. I look, I never saw him again. We never met again. A project didn't emerge, but right. I always have that evening in Ketner's with Terence Davies. Yeah,
1: no, as you wondering. will
0: with Kundera, Yeah,
1: yeah, these are golden moments. You 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 have to ring fence them. And, uh,
0: exactly. No, now no. I have to move on now, like I do with all my yeah. guests about your early experiences of theatre, whether that was in the family did you see
1: theatre or Not so much, although I do remember the things that I saw, we weren't particularly a theatre going family, all the theatre was at home, it was you know, a highly (laughs) charged atmosphere, very flamboyant and very full of emotions of one sort or another, Um, they didn't feel the need to see that reproduced on the stage, Um, (laughs) but um, I I, uh, I was taken, um, there's some confusion in my mind as to what exactly the first thing that I saw was, because there are two things vying for that honor, or actually three things vying for that honor. And they sort of, in a way, maybe point to a a lot of what happened in the rest of my life, which which is, um, uh, I was taken to a theater in Croydon, a theater in the round, to see a a version of A Christmas Carol. Uh, performed by an ensemble of actors um, and Scrooge was played by an actor called um, Lawrence Payne and uh, he was an RSC sort of veteran and he was slumming it in Croydon but I think it was probably a very good production but it's scared the shit out of me. And I thought, I was seven or something like that, maybe six, I thought, I never want to see anything by this Dickens again, it's just scary stuff. So I stayed off for quite a long while from Dickens, but it's in my mind, even now, this very sparse production, just a few chairs and so on, absolutely wonderful. Second great memory is being taken to the the Scala Theater, now long demolished, which was the home from time immemorial of Peter Pan. and. Uh, this is the story that I remember and that has subsequently been told, which is it was a snowy day, we were queuing outside the theatre. I was just howling with with tears and 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 rage, as you do when you're six or seven in those circumstances. And then, I remember finally getting into the foyer. But still crying and crying and crying and then sitting in this big room with all this red velvet and a big curtain and so on and still crying and crying and crying. And then the curtain rising on the Darling's family home with the dog Nana padding about and all tears ending and me just utterly and totally enraptured. And, and that show peter pan has stayed with me deep deep in my heart ever since i still think it's uh, one of the most curious and profound and odd plays ever written but oh goodness me when i saw uh, well, years and years and years later saw uh the rsc production the second cast featured mark rylance as ah. peter pan. wow absolutely and totally definitive and nothing that mark has done all the many wonderful things mark's done since uh, uh, has eclipsed my memory of that he was that boy man reluctant to be a man boy it, it was just absolutely miraculous and then the third uh, thing is um uh, a pantomime at the Streatham Hill Theatre, my, my I was born in Streatham and my 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 grandmother, my mother's mother lived in Streatham still. Uh, and we were taken to the Streatham Hill Theatre to see um uh oh what's the one with Baron Hardup in it? Um uh, I should be able to remember this, shouldn't I? It might be Mother Goose, I can't remember. It's one of one of the ones. And and the the villain, Baron Hardup, was played by a, a, an actor called Jimmy Edwards.
0: Oh, yes, Jimmy was Edwards. Yes, famous of course. in
1: his day yeah. with a huge handlebar, mustache yeah, yeah. all of yeah. that. And the, 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 the little story attached to that is that, um, uh, obviously they'd been running it in for some time, and the cast were, as they tend to be in Panto, um, on the brink of corpsing uh, at every minute. <laughs> and, um, he, uh, that somebody said something like, um, I have a message from the queen. And he takes it and he looks at the message and he says, silly old queen. And of course, that was a gag for his fellow actors. And they all broke up because he'd made the line up, obviously. I, evidently a monarchist at the age of five, stood up, (laughs) how dare you say something about our queen? (laughs) <laughs> back down by my family to shut up. So that was sort of it really. And then I, I went to live in Africa when I was nine for three years. I lived in Zambia basically, but went to school in South Africa. And there I saw some uh, a couple of play, amateur productions of things like The Merchant of Venice and so on. And I found them very engaging, but this is sort of the first proper plays that I ever saw as I said, done by amateurs. I have no idea now whether they were any good or not. And at my boarding school, I did do a play which I have no memory except there's a photograph of me in it, playing a 90-year-old major general with a huge mustache and um, uh, a lantern. And I'm shining it into the face of the other actor and going like this, and it's very, I'm in it. I'm definitely in character, (laughs) no doubt about that. And then a f- famous last thing was in Lusaka, uh, when I was back there at school in 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 north northern Odisha, it was then, not Zambia, um, Miss Isabel, the beauteous Miss Isabel, was the sort of English teacher, but she put on a little play from time to time. And uh, uh, there was this play about a king who uh, had... Uh, was afflicted with spots in front of his eyes and everybody in the kingdom was sent out to find a cure for this and nobody could and doctors were kicked out of the house and killed and whatever and then eventually a man comes up to into the palace and he says, excuse me I've got, I'd like to speak to the king and uh, uh, they say no no no, you can't the king is in great distress and he says, no no I, I, I've got to say it's very important this he says, you know I, I made a suit for him just recently I made a shirt for him and I uh, i think the collar was too tight and they said oh well, for God's sake this is not important this is is it well yes he said but the side effect might be he might see spots in front of his eyes and that was the end that was the little story of the play. So I said to Miss Isabel wouldn't it be marvelous? If when he says, uh, you could see spots in front of you, I just fell backwards. And she said, no, I don't think that would be good at all. It would be very vulgar, Simon. Don't do that. So I said, OK. And then, of course, when we showed it in front of the public, I did exactly <laughs> that. Got a round of applause. So there probably started my suspicion of the uh, control of directors. <laughs>
0: yes, I think you've touched on it. What a wonderful, eclectic mix of influences, theatrically there. I mean, it, it's fascinating. And, of course... You then obviously went on to initially go to university in Belfast, is that right? Yeah, that's right. But at what point during your studies there was theatre becoming all consuming? So, that, when did you suddenly go, I've got to do this?
1: Oh, it all already was. Uh, oh. I, uh, because by then, I had, when I left school, I had n- no idea on earth what I was Uh, what I I, I wanted to do but I just knew I didn't want to go to university I I, I was a very bookish I was immersed in analysis and and thinking about literature and so on I just thought no because that would be the only thing I could do at university I had no gifts uh, uh, mathematically or scientifically at all Um, and um, so I just didn't know what to do so I went to work my very first job was in a bookshop Uh, a slightly depressing uh, experience for somebody who loves books because it wasn't actually a bookshop. It was a a library wholesalers, which mostly involved me carrying around huge piles of Mills and Boone romances from side to side of the shop. And um, uh, uh, I did, on the other hand, uh, find in one of those Mills and Boone romances, which I quickly read through, one of the greatest lines in the whole of English literature, I believe, which is uh, it said at the very end, the last paragraph of this book. And so Sandy and Evangeline took each other by the hand and walked off into the horizon, two human hovercraft. I thought this is surely one of the greatest phrases ever. Anyway, so I was going to the theatre all the time, completely theatre-struck, obsessed by it, read about it massively, read all of Stanislavski and all the critics, and I read George Bernard Shaw's plays from beginning to end, the collected plays and the collected prefaces. I read all of Ibsen, all of Strindberg. For some reason, partly because there was no school drama at my school, I had no idea that it might be that i wanted to be an actor but anyway one day i went to the theater all the time and i was at the matinee at the national theater of the old vic in the days when laurence olivier was running it and i said uh, to myself this is there's something completely wonderful about this organization what it is is that everybody who works for it seems to believe in what's going on on the stage. It's not just that the actors are wonderful and the productions are wonderful, but everybody in the box office seemed to feel strongly that it was a, a, an important organization that they were serving, even the people in the coffee bar and the people in the bookshop and so on. So I sat down and I wrote, or rather typed, um, three closely typed schools cap pages uh, addressed to Laurence Olivier, explaining to him what a wonderful theater he was running. And he wrote back by return of post and said, well, if you like it so much, why don't you come and work here? There's a job in the box office. So I got a job in the box office of the National Theater at the Old Vic in its palmy, palmy days, Maggie Smith and uh, um, Ralph Richardson and John Gielgud and all this. And um, that's when I first came into contact with the actual theater. And it turned out to be a completely different place to what I'd imagined. And Olivier was terrifically strong on creating a company feeling throughout the theater, hence the enthusiasm of everybody who was working front of house. He sort of knew everybody's name and he potted around being charming to people just to make them all feel part of it. And he'd very brilliantly uh, determined that the best way to bind a company together is in food. And so he'd knocked down two storerooms in the basement of the old vic and installed a kitchen and hired a really excellent chef and charged rock bottom prices and so everybody went there the whole of the theater all the elements of the theater the stagehands the 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 electricians the um cleaners the actors the directors the designers everybody so you had a terrific sense of the community it's
0: it's funny you say that in a sense Simon, because it but it makes me think of something much more European, the kind of thing that would have been at the Berliner Ensemble or
1: something. Totally. But, Absolutely. But were,
0: well, I have to ask you, because it's an amazing thing that you wrote You wrote this letter. Did you think you would get a reply from it? Did you expect a reply?
1: I shouldn't think so, no. not Although I had some success with writing to the great, because at one point um, I wrote a letter to the Queen, uh, not <laughs> much before this letter to Lawrence Olivier, because my great grandfather, who was um, a stained glass uh, window artist, wrote monographs of the saints and when George V was crowned he wrote and dedicated to the king uh, a little monograph about Saint George and sent it to Buckingham Palace And which certainly in those days but I think still now basically they never accept gifts they send them back but for some reason King George V accepted this gift and my grandmother was haunted by the fact she hadn't got a copy of it and so she didn't wasn't able to, to to read it or judge his work and so I wrote to Buckingham Palace uh, explaining this story and saying, would it be possible to have a photocopy of it? But I addressed it to the Queen, Your Majesty, you know. And again, I mean, one might as well have thrown a, a letter in a bottle on the waters. I mean, I had no real idea whether I'd hear from her at all. And some time passed, but then about 10 weeks after I sent the letter, there was a knock at the door from a completely gobsmacked postman with a letter which said, on Her Majesty's personal service, no stamp. And uh, so well, there uh, I, he regarded me with awe and respect. And, and they said, yes, uh, uh, it was the uh, librarian who said, Her Majesty has passed uh, her letter, your letter on to me. Uh, and she wished me to say how fascinated she was by it. And uh, yes, certainly we'll send you a photocopy. So they,
0: <laughs> um, Obviously, uh, your passion for theatre continued and then you, it, it
1: became real
0: in a sense. And I was, I was looking back on some of your early acting and, and uh, when you talk about Olivier as part, uh, in, obviously loving the notion of a company and, mm. and the a broader sense, it, when I was reading some of your early experiences it, it, and actually when I worked with you later on I, I at the RSC you directed me you always had a, it placed a huge importance on what it meant to be a company and part of a company yeah. and did that feel like that for you when you were working say with uh, Gay Sweatshop and uh, um, Joint Stock
1: that kind of thing
0: Gay, of sweatshop, was of a company?
1: Slightly, gay sweatshop wasn't exactly a company because uh, it was just a whole series of lunchtime plays um, And they had their own separate casts and not much overlap. Um, Joint Stock was indeed a a company and had been formed precisely to be a company. And it was a a cooperative. I don't know whether technically, legally it was a cooperative, but it certainly was. That was the idea. And um, uh, uh, this, I think, was the first year of of a, a whole year of company work. Um, and it was run by two very powerful directors, one Bill Gaskill, now dead, mm-hmm. and Max stafford Clark, now still alive. And uh, I, I was terrifically keen on this idea of company. I, I really have had this idea. I don't know quite where I, I got it from, but, uh, but but I've had this, I suppose it, you're right, it was from the old wick. It was from the sense of this, you know, as Dickens liked to put it, it it's, it's a human pyramid, the theatre, you know. And well, so it's society, for that matter. But 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 you know the theatre very very specifically, and and any weakness anywhere, uh, any lack of commitment anywhere will affect everything else. You know, and you know as we all know, uh, if somebody doesn't play the first scene very well, then whoever else comes on stage after it has got to build up extra kind of focus in order to to, to make it work. And if it does go very well, then the moment you come on stage, you're riding a a, a wave, you know. And uh, so I felt that very strongly and uh, was a bit inspired because this was, um, when was it, 70, 76 or something like that I joined, maybe 77, I joined Joint Stock. And they were still very flush with the ideas contained in the play and before that, the sociological study, Fan Shen, which was about uh, democracy, absolute democracy and total candor and openness and uh, um, uh, uh, um, uh, integrated group living. And um, so that was the idea. Uh, The reality of it was that two very powerful directors were running (laughs) (laughs) and uh, in the end, what they wanted happened. And that the company thing, and therefore, the company never really did quite take responsibility in the way that we all should have been doing. And uh, uh, it, it it was, for me, a, 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 a quite a disappointment in that regard.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. That is interesting.
1: I, I mm-hmm. never actually belonged to a company, except at the National. When we were at the National, uh, now, you said it's funny to even think that all these theatres, the RSC, the Company and of course all the repertory theatres had standing companies. And it, 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 when I had started to be an actor, the the great dream was to join a repertory theatre and stay there for three years, mm. and you'd learn and learn and, and master your art and all the rest. Of it, non-existent now.
0: It's interesting as so well when you talk about the National because I wanted to come to something I mentioned in the, in the introduction. Of course, your uh, your uh, appearing performance work on uh, Amadeus, and you mentioned all those amazing actors that you saw on stage. And, uh, I'm just thinking now as a fellow actor, what did mm. it feel like going into a room with Paul Schofield? Because all I can think of, that must be one of the most daunting... But I don't know what... Do you remember that for early experience? <laughs> oh,
1: God, absolute terror. I mean, absolute terror. I'd, yeah. I'd I'd, already done As You Like It at the National uh, and uh, uh, with John Dexter, who's a sort yeah. of terrifying figure, like a regimental sergeant major gone mad, but also uh, a, a, a a sort of a bit of a genius of staging and 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 a wounded human being that one became quite fond of. But it was much more even. It wasn't a company of stars exactly, although there were people like, um, you know, uh, Sarah Kestelman who was playing Rosalind opposite my Orlando, uh, Michael Bryant, who was just a, a wonderful company. They weren't star stars like, like Gilgood or Richardson, or anything like that. And so then we came to um, Amadeus and there's, Schofield, who was truly godlike to me, I, I mean, I, I my early enthusiasm for Olivier, which never completely disappeared, but uh, had, had been uh, tempered by exposure to Paul Schofield. I'd seen him do so many things and this extraordinary capacity to bring a world on with him, but not draw attention to his own virtuosity at all was terribly um, striking and 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 I had a sense of him as a sort of high priest of the art of acting whereas Olivier was always you know Archie Rice somewhere behind it all you know but Paul was different it was art you know of a high high level uh, as it happens he wasn't like that at all uh, he was much more convivial and uh, uh, modest in a way than than that but I didn't know that. I wasn't to know that. <laughs> we had to sit down for this first read-through, and thank God Felicity Kendall was playing my wife, and I knew Felicity. That I'd done a television play with her, and we'd got on terrifically well. So this was huge, huge, huge relief. And then there were some of the actors who'd been in As You Like It because it was the Olivier company, but it was also Peter Hall and Peter Schaffer. And it, the, the way in which I got the part of uh, uh, Mozart was so unexpected it was that john dexter had been going to direct amadeus not at the national just anywhere he was going to direct it and he had decided without ever seeing my acting that i was the person to play mozart so based so,
0: purely on what he'd heard about you
1: yes i mean his boyfriend had seen me doing a a play at the Royal Court and said to John, but I'd already met John for another play, which didn't happen, and we'd got on famously well over kippers at the Savoy, and uh, <laughs> we, 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 you know, we bonded. I mean, uh, the, the the thing that was um, uh, uh, the thing that bonded me to him and to many other people in my career was being stage struck. Basically, if you scratch the toughest old kind of gnarled warrior of the theatre, if you scratch him a bit, you generally find. Mm a love of what the theatre can be and should be. And uh, that was deep inside John. Anyway, John, blustering about like some demented regimental sergeant major, as I say, uh, finally fell out with Peter uh, Schaffer. And I thought, well, that's that. I won't be playing Mozart anymore. And then one day a phone call came from the National Theatre to my agent saying there's this new play that we're doing called Amma." a um, mo um, oh, um, uh, um, uh, um, um, I don't know anyway they want him to play Mozart in it and this will make you laugh. they want him to play Orlando in as you like It <laughs> I wasn't obvious casting for Orlando but anyway, so there I was. I'd, be, I'd been given the part you know uh, without and it turned out that neither Paul Schofield nor Peter Hall nor half of the people in the room that day, or Peter Schaffer had ever seen me act at all. So, I wonder—is that both
0: a liberating thing for you, or a scary thing for you, or a mix of the two?
1: Well, I didn't know. You see, ah. I didn't know. I thought they must have seen me do something, otherwise they wouldn't. Have this got was to revealed me. later, later on. Okay,
0: okay. They
1: just decided that I was the right guy for it. I had a couple of successes playing Arthur Ui at the Half Moon and Mary Barnes at the Royal Court. I wasn't unknown, no. but I wasn't a high, high, high flying superstar. I—I
0: I, I have to ask you as well. Did your did your love of Mozart precede getting that part or did it occur more when you were doing it? or? or
1: yes, that... it long preceded it. I, yeah. I'd, I'd fallen in love with Mozart's music when I was about 12, much to the uh, dismay of my family, who thought that Mozart was, as many people did in those days, or the phrase was uh, tiddly-pom music. It was all tiddly-pom music. It's not, They wanted the hard you know, red meat of Tchaikovsky and Puccini and Verdi and all of that, but I discovered that, limitless depths in Mozart and the extraordinary perfection and so on. So I did actually know a really a lot about Mozart. Thank God. I think that was a huge, huge help. But the greatest help for me of all was after that first read through, when, of course, I went berserk because I, I I really just decided to go for it. I thought, I can't give a timid reading of this. I've just got to go for it. And I went for it like mad, giggling and shrieking and farting and all the rest of it. And at the end of it, Peter Hall said, thank you all very much. And then he came over to me with his arm on my shoulder. And I thought, fuck, that's it. The P45 is about to <laughs> be delivered." And he said, that was a very brave reading. And I thought, oh, I really am for the chop now. He said, <laughs> And he said, it's all there. Everything you did here, that is in the part of Mozart. And it has to be like that. And it has to be there. However... I have to believe at every single moment that you're on the stage that you wrote the overture to The Marriage of Figaro. It's a wonderful note. I mean, it's just the most... I mean, Peter had his limitations as as a director, but he was wonderful at giving notes that really change your entire attitude. And I thought, fuck, that's right. That has to be right. And that's what i struggled with all the way through. But I think I got there eventually. I think I might have got some of the way there by the first night. But but by the end, I really did convey that I had written that music. And that was the most important. There was a revival at the National recently, which was hugely acclaimed and very energetic and busy. And uh, But the actor who played Mozart, who was incredibly daring and, uh, and risk of it, I never believed that he had written a note of that music, not for one second. And therefore, it doesn't matter. If he no, didn't uh, that music, the play doesn't matter.
0: No, and it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That kind of, in a sense, in a, in a literal sense, that juxtaposition between how someone behaves and what they're capable of is a really fascinating thing about, about him and about m- yes. many, I suppose, uh, famous... I mean, you've, you've in some ways, through your career, you've touched on or worked with or worked on some quite iconic figures and yeah. um, I, I, obviously I want to talk uh, 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 not just about your acting because mm-hmm. one of the joys I've loved so much are, are your books on Orson Wells and oh. I, I absolutely are uh, unmatchable yeah. and clearly it became an enormous passion of yours to to try to tackle this extraordinary figure in Wales. And yeah. it made me It made me laugh when I read that someone, when you first pitched it, you'd said you wanted one volume to be a novel and one to be... <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 yeah. And that, that was uh, the, uh, Yeah, the idea was that the first volume, I, I said to the publisher, the American publisher, I said, uh, uh, well, the first volume will uh, end with Citizen Kane. The second volume will end with Chimes at Midnight. And the third volume will be a novel. And he said, Young Man, if you are very lucky, you will be allowed to write this book in two volumes, neither of which will be a novel. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but I have, I mean, there are sorry. Uh, where where are you at? Because I I read during lockdown you were working on the fourth volume. Where does that sit at the moment?
1: I wasn't. I, that was a lie. Ah. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't face it. I couldn't face it. You know, like many people during lockdown, all I could manage were small achievable tasks. And writing volume four was just too enormous. Uh, And one felt so unsettled and hemmed in and all of that. So I'm just about to start writing volume four, just about. Uh, And it's a very, very difficult volume to write because it's the last 20 years of his life, which should have been his absolute prime as a director from the ages of 50 to 70. And he made in that whole 20 years just two films 80 minutes each one and both for television and yeah. uh, one is called the immortal story it is a very interesting film and the other is called f for fake which is a sort of brilliant dazzling conjuring trick of a film but when you think that he'd achieved chimes at midnight what he'd achieved and how he achieved it it was he should have he was came incredibly close to making a film of king lear I'm really, really close. I have all the all the designs, all yeah, the yeah. breakdown of the props, yeah. and all that just never happened. And, and also, uh, I suppose
0: that sense of I, I can only it, actually it, I I totally get what you're saying, and I can only imagine something that's filled with a deep melancholy. I think yeah, it's
1: yeah, yeah. you know that
0: that sense of where whether he felt that or not, I I don't know, but that's what he, it fills he, me with. You know, he
1: felt he felt. um depressed angry and ashamed he felt he knew you know what his talent was some might say genius was uh and he just hadn't fulfilled it and 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 i don't know i do know that to some extent he felt it might have been self-engendered i i think it was more self-engendered than he admitted to himself Mm-hmm. Uh, for a whole complex of reasons but the loss to us i mean as as film lovers is just immeasurable yes. and I, I i have the uh, all the materials for at least six films which were absolutely ready to go And And he just couldn't get the finances
0: for one reason Couldn't
1: cast them with the, you know, he he, he lives through what any of us who've tried to make films uh, live through all the time, is you're absolutely dependent on getting a bankable star, you know? And they they all said how much they adored him, how they admired him, how he was a god, how he was the greatest filmmaker ever, but unfortunately they were busy. Or unfortunately they didn't quite feel it was right for them now, or whatever, whatever, whatever.
0: Uh, It's strange, I remember persuading my my wife and uh, my 5 year old daughter that we should holiday in Essaouira in uh, Morocco oh, yeah. and it was <laughs> primarily so i could visit places <laughs> uh, which you'll know and um, actually we had lovely had an amazing place anyway yeah so it's a wonderful place but my reason was to go for a while find an odyssey now i've got to ask my first uh, question around regret because uh, you know you are you have astonishingly you know uh, excelled in so many different things as a Have you ever had any regret that you didn't focus purely on your acting or has one always fed the other for you, the, the, the writing and the acting?
1: I think there was a point when I was, when I'd been acting for, started acting in 73. Around 82, 83, I'd I, I, I never stopped working. It was just one of those unbelievably lucky things. And, and of course, the trajectory was absolutely up, up, up with Amadeus and, and all of that. And then when I left the National Theatre, I did a, a, a Christopher Hampton play called Total Eclipse, which I adore and which David Hare directed superbly. I did a world premiere of an Edward Bond play, Restoration, which is a great, great piece of work. And uh, I did... Less happily, The Beastly Beatitudes of Balthazar B by J.P. Don Levy, which I absolutely adored, but the critics didn't at all. And the producer kept it on for 10 and a half months, playing to like 20% audiences, which is really a recipe for insanity. Uh, And I just suddenly felt then I've just spent myself uh, in terms of, I, I don't know that the impulse to act has now become exhausted in me. And then by great good luck, I was invited to go to Santa Fe with a small group of actors from the uh, National Theatre and a director uh, to start an organisation which was called then the British American Theatre Institute, but they didn't like the acronym very much. So they changed it to the British Academy of, uh, of, of, of British American Drama Association, BADA. And um it's very successful. And I started teaching for the first time and directing for the first time, as well as acting. And at that same moment, sort of out of the blue, was a, a suggestion that I might write a book about the theatre from Nick Hearn, the theatre publisher. And uh, so suddenly my horizons opened massively. And I, I'm a very greedy person. And when I got a <laughs> snip of all this stuff, I couldn't stop going after it you know and you mentioned it earlier uh, also got an offer to play in a sitcom uh, which I'd I'd, I'd appeared in a couple of sitcoms in the very early days of my career but I'd not had much to do and this sitcom which is called A Chance in a Million which is utterly brilliantly written fabulously original odd marvellous piece
0: I I have to say I urge any listeners who do not know this sitcom Chance (laughs) in a Million which kind of uh, ran I think for th- three seasons was it in, yep. in, in yep. The, the late 80s it, it is a brilliant example of a sitcom I think because it's so pure in how it's structured when you talk about the writing also your, your character of Tom Chast is such a brilliant <laughs> creation I want, to rem- I want to share it with you and the listeners uh, it was something about your the way your character spoke as well which uh, you yeah yeah had- very funny. Like, there's a line here where you're talking to Alison, your girlfriend or whatever, your wife, or whatever, on the phone, and you say, "Can't talk, Alison. Car being towed. Problem with lawn furniture." And, it
1: was
0: that <laughs> <line>. <laughs> and when I it's, was,
1: um, you know, who it's, what it's based on? It's based on Mister Jingle from um, uh, Pickwick Papers, who talks exactly I, I like. I
0: didn't know that, but it's yeah, so yeah, yeah. brilliant.
1: Yeah. Oh, so wow. wonderful,
0: and it's such a brilliant idea that everything. The, the yeah. fact that you get into all these scrapes and you in. And also, you take those scrapes and situations, uh, you're always kind of, there's a positivity about it, which which means it remains relentlessly funny, that sense of you, you know, to the point that the police sergeant saying, do not arrest this man, whatever the... (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. ...drive the so I urge anybody. Now Now we've touched on comedy, which, of course, uh, is close to my heart and, and and I know yours. And when you wonderfully came to see our current show, uh, Charlie and Stan at Wilton's Musical, and we were exchanging emails about this podcast, you mentioned a thing I didn't know. was your love for eccentric movement or eccentric dance and your connection to the Max Wall Society.
1: Yeah, 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 yeah. I've always been totally... Fa- when I, I saw Max Wolf first in uh, my very first job in rep, in 1979, in Lincoln, and um, we were a company. We were a company there for. I, I think I did four plays, maybe maybe five with them. And um, we all went off uh, en masse to see Max Wall in the Working Men's Club. He, he, he'd come wow. to the show, and um, we all knew him from, uh, I suppose, uh, television or what I don't know. We all knew that he was a great, one of the greats. And so we went, uh, trooped into this, and famously, you know, he played Professor Wolofsky, wearing uh, tights, uh, sort of half ape and half man, actually, with a a dicky and uh, a a, a dinner jacket, not a dinner jacket, a (laughs) tail, curtailed tails, and... it was, well, you, 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 many, many people know that wonderful, the, the, it was slightly surreal, the whole act. and uh, um, But his physical life was absolutely astounding because he was ape-like and he'd do these walks, these funny, funny walks. And I, then I didn't know so much about him. So I looked it up and I discovered that he was, technically speaking, he started his work on the boards uh, um, in, in the... Sort of days of variety, it wasn't strictly speaking the music hall, but it was very much the spirit of the music hall, uh, doing what was known as, technically speaking, novelty dancing. Yeah. And uh though it was a huge movement, you know, there was a lot of it, oh. all kinds of clowns, comedians, dancers, it's somewhere in between all of these things, doing pushing the extent of the human body into bizarre shapes, but always with a certain grace about it. There was It was definitely art, you know. And uh, I've I got a friend, a woman called Betsy Betos, who uh, uh, was an American novelty dancer herself, or eccentric dancer herself. That's the other term for it, eccentric dancing. And um, she uh, has started, she's made a documentary about eccentric dancing and discovered... Max Wall and was of course totally in love after he died this is and then somebody said oh, you should talk to Simon Cowder, because I did know a lot about Max and had thought a lot about Max. I never met him but but I saw all his stage roles he was a wonderful actor especially in Beckett absolutely yes extraordinary but also as genius as Archie Rice in The Entertainer I mean where Olivier, you know, when when Olivier played Archie Rice, the clapped out music hall comedian, uh, um, Jack Lemon went to see him and said, How did you manage to dance so badly? And he said, by doing it as well as I could, dear boy. Uh, <laughs> Max, it was quite the opposite. He, yeah, yeah, yeah. he, was such an extraordinary physical creature. He just had to do three moves, and suddenly you were in a different world of expression. I um, also, I, I, my connection, to him, I remember was watching my father watching him when
0: I was little, watching my dad watch Max Wall on TV and be crying with laughter. Yeah, yeah
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. I look yeah.
0: back at it, it. It's it's quite un it's quite unusual. <laughs> It's not someone standing telling jokes.
1: Not at it's all. Quite,
0: quite surreal. It taps into a kind of slightly bizarre world. But my dad, this electrician from Birmingham, thought it
1: was the funniest <laughs>
0: thing. And I, and I have to say, I, I'm going to admit a regret of mine now, being a stupid, foolish young actor. I remember being at drama school and someone had a ticket to go and see Maxwell in Craps Last tape at the Riverside Studios. And foolishly, I was no. waylaid in the pub and didn't go. So that's my great regret. Is there's somebody that you regret not having seen live, a performer that you wished you could have seen on stage?
1: Donald Wolfit. Wow. Donald yes. Wolfit, who, by the way, and it all ties up exquisitely, as I'm sure you intended, um, I worked out was my Captain Hook at the Scala Theatre.
0: Perfect. Perfect, Simon. So we he,
1: come full circle. <laughs> Donald Wolfit was, uh, when I started going to the theatre, was widely regarded as a sort of a joke. Uh, he was so much in the grand manner, you know, huge voice and projection, and hewn out of wood and marble. But I then got to talk to other people, older people who'd seen Woolfitt in his great days, touring Shakespeare and Ben Jonson unceasingly around the world. I mean, and and the program, if you look at it, he was playing King Lear. Uh, Macbeth, uh, all in one week, Uh, 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 um, Ben Johnson, blah, blah, blah. Um, And uh, uh, they said, a number of people said to me that his King Lear was so beyond anything, anybody they'd ever seen achieve with this part, Uh, the absolute depth and breadth and rootedness of it. And uh, uh, Peter Schaffer said, he said the first scene when he saw it wasn't particularly brilliant, but from the moment that Lear was liberated from being a king, Peter said, you just had the absolute conviction, not that you were in the presence of an actor, but that you were in the presence of King Lear. No question about it. It was himself and that's that's remarkable and everybody people who saw him during the blitz and all of that playing Leah, but many many other things you know um and i I've, I've got a there's a, a longing in me for the archaic i'm very very interested in what people did before us you know the opposite of the present time where the past is more or less demonized by people mm. as dirty and the source of all our problems. But in terms of the theatre, uh, the expressive power of an actor like, shall we say, Irving or or the mercurial genius of someone like David Garrick or Keen, this fascinates me deeply. What did they do? I think,
0: I, I totally agree, and I think obviously
1: working on Charlie
0: and Stan was a, yeah. was a huge joy because we were also, in a sense, looking at a form that is 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 kind of ageless and and is also a performance form, not a director's form. It's yeah. passed on verbally from or physically from performer. Yeah. Simon, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. It's been oh, we could chat all day. We should do it again. Um, I, <laughs> need <to laughs> I need to finish by asking you seven very quick questions to which you yep. give a, a whatever response. Uh, well, you'll you'll get the yeah. idea. Georges um, Fedot or Eugene Lebiche?
1: Fedot, I think.
0: Uh, the Cotswolds or the Lake District.
1: I don't know the Lake District at all, so it'll have to be the Cotswolds. <laughs> Stilton <laughs> or Camembert? Stilton. Lucille Ball or Joyce Grenfell? Lucille Ball. <laughs>
0: Miss Marple or Hercule Poirot?
1: Well, it depends who's playing them, but uh, <laughs> you Margaret Rutherford's what? Miss Marple, then.
0: Yes. Touch of Evil or Chimes at Midnight? I think I know the answer.
1: It has to be Chimes at Midnight.
0: Yes, I thought you were going to say that. Acting or Writing?
1: Ah, no, that's a cruel one. What if I say directing?
0: <laughs> exactly. That's a perfect answer. Simon, thank you so much. It's been really you, lovely Paul. to talk to you. And, you and let's get together soon. Have a glass yeah. of wine or something.
1: Sure. All the best. Take God care. bless.
0: Dear listeners, if you've enjoyed this idiot podcast, please Spread the word.